Good audience. Welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I am Rob Kent, author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, Banneker Bones, of course, is an 11-year-old boy genius biracial detective and also an inventor of robots, uh, which comes in handy since he's going to be fighting giant robot bees. This book is available uh, as a glorious audiobook narrated by David Radke. It's available in the paperback I'm holding up for you now. And the ebook is permanently free to download. Whenever you're listening to this, you can get it free. If you like me, you like the show, go get the book. If you like the book, leave it a review. That helps me out quite a bit. Uh, and then that'll get you set up for Bandicoot Bones and the Alligator People, which is coming out later this year under the super secret pen name Robert Kent. I've written the young adult novel all together now, a zombie story. Uh, there is absolutely no profanity in this novel, but there is a heck of a lot of violence. If that's fun for you as a zombie carnage, you're going to have a good time. Uh, and then under the same name, Robert Kent, I've also written the Book of David. Uh, this one has all the profanity, all the bad things. It's basically me doing my Stephen King impersonation, impersonation but with flying saucers. If you like that idea, it's five uh, serial novels. Uh, long. The first chapter is always free to download as an ebook whenever you're listening to this. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, I am too. Uh, come back on Tuesday, January 22nd. We're going to have former literary agent and now current editor Amy Tipton here. Uh, Amy Tipton has represented such authors as Amy Reed uh, and Courtney Summers, two of my favorite authors. She's going to come and she's going to tell us uh, what advice she gave to them and what advice she's now available to give to you. Uh, and we're going to have more episodes coming throughout the year. We're going to have folks such as Jessica Lawson, uh, Lamar Giles, Daniel Kenny, Maurice Broadus, Daniel Jose Older, uh, plus some uh, various literary agents and editors that we're still working out dates for. It's going to be a great year. If you yourself are an author uh, or a publishing professional of any kind and you are interested in appearing on the show, head to middlegradeninja.com and get in touch with me. I'm booking ghosts, uh, guests, ghosts. I wish I were booking ghosts. <laughs> I'm uh, booking guests slowly. Uh, don't wait for me to get to you because um, I, I will. I absolutely want to talk to you. But go ahead and send me an email and just let me know that you're interested in coming on. We'd love to chat with you. Uh, my guest today is none other than Jacqueline West, who has appeared at middlegradeninja.com before and hopefully will appear again in the future. Jacqueline, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here. Um, I've learned that I'm terrible about summarizing other people's books and other people's biographies. Uh, so if you would, just go ahead and tell esteemed audience a little bit about yourself. All right. Uh, I am terrible at summarizing my own books, but I will do my best. Um, so I, I write middle grade NYA. Uh, I'm going to grab a copy here and hold it up. My uh, first series is called The Books of Elsewhere, which looks like this. Um, and these are a, a dark fantasy mystery series about a girl named Olive uh, who moves to a new town with her parents and they buy this strange old stone house that's the subject of lots of local lore. And as Olive uncovers more and more secrets about the house and its past, she discovers that the paintings that have been left hanging on the walls can come to life and she can even climb inside of them and explore these painted worlds where the house's former owner hid a lot of dangerous secrets. Um, so that is the Books of Elsewhere in a nutshell. Um, my most recent middle grade book, well, second most recent, is called The Collectors, uh, which looks like this. Uh, and The Collectors is about a small boy named Van who discovers a hidden underworld full of collected wishes. 
so wish magic and wish power, um, and ends up kind of caught in the middle of a battle between two opposing forces who both want this magic for themselves. And my book that just came out on uh, Tuesday <laughs> is called Excellent Big Enough timing. Danger. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, and this is a Story Pirates Presents project. The Story Pirates are this New York-based improv theater troupe who um, work with kids uh, teaching storytelling all over the country. And so they have a popular podcast um, and they opened a contest for kids to send in book ideas and then selected some winning ideas and hired professional writers to write the book based on those ideas. So I got to write a mystery called Digging Up Danger based on the ideas sent in by a nine-year-old girl who won the contest and it was a blast. So that's what I've been working on. <laughs> oh, what a thrilling thing for her. What a thrilling thing for you. And now what a thrilling thing for all the readers that the book is available for. <laughs> I hope so. Thanks. Yeah. Well, what I uh, want to do, because I could talk to you forever. Your your expertise is vast. Your success is vast. I want to know as much about how you achieve that success as possible. Uh, so what I'd like to do is start off talking specifically about your books, and then we'll talk more about just writing, your writing habits, uh, mm -hmm. and, and the things you've learned to do to set yourself up for success. So let's stick with the newest book, Digging Up Danger. Uh, which makes me, I'm, I'm such a nerd for Into the Spider-Verse. Every time I've been reading the title of your book, I've been thinking of that song, What's Up Danger, which is the, the oh. big song that the nerds will know. That's, that's when Spider-Man jumps off the building for the first time. <laughs> oh, how wonderful. <laughs> um, so digging up danger, tell us, uh, uh, give us a more detailed synopsis of the plot and what readers can look forward to with that one. Sure. So the plot involves a girl named Eliza who is a amateur ghost hunter, future professional ghost hunter. Um, so she is kind of a paranormal researcher. She keeps a detailed ghost notebook um, and she's created her own ghost communication device, which is a sort of glorified spinner from a twister game that ghosts can tap and tell her yes and no and so on, kind of like a Ouija board. Um, but she is unfortunately spending the summer with her mother in New York City at a exotic plant store. Her mother is a botanist, so is her father, who is away researching plants in the Amazon basin. Um, and her mother has been asked to visit this store to consult on a shipment of new and rare plants. And Eliza soon figures out that this plant shop in this kind of tumble-down old building in a corner of Brooklyn, she believes is haunted. There are definitely odd things happening here. And then when one of the extremely rare plants goes missing, Eliza, of course, gets involved in trying to unravel who took it and why. It turns out that some of her assumptions might be wrong, but that there is far weirder stuff going on here than ghosts. So that's Digging Up Danger. <laughs> and is Digging Up Danger the start of a new series or is this a one-off? It's a, well, it's a series, but not by me. So the first installment of the Story Pirates Present was um, a time travel adventure, which came out last year and was written by Jeff Rodkey. It's called Stuck in the Stone Age. Uh, and so mine, this mystery is their second volume. And I believe they just finished their contest for a third volume, which will be, I can't remember if it's a historical adventure, but it's another genre then that a, a kid idea was taken to be the basis of the story. So the Story Pirates Present line will continue. Well, I pity this third author that's going to have to come in and, and follow you. Aww, uh, that's thanks. like uh, having to do a, a comedy act and, I don't know, somebody really famous. Bill Burr <laughs> just left the stage and now you've got to get up and try and make people laugh uh, after that. <laughs> I felt that way having to follow Jeff Rodkey. And I know him and he's great. He wrote um, the Tapper Twins series and a bunch of other stuff, including a bunch of famous movies. And he's so funny. Just 
dauntingly funny. And then his book got all these starred reviews and I was like, oh, Jeff, stop setting the bar this high. I have to follow you. <laughs> but so far, so good with picking up dangers. <laughs> so he has set you up in a sweet spot and you're going to do your best to set up the next author in a, in a similarly sweet spot then? Yes. Yeah. I can let Jeff be funny. I'll try to be scary. Somebody else can do something totally different. <laughs> And uh, third author, whoever you turn out to be, if you want to come on and chat about your experience, uh, get in touch with me through middlegradeninja.com. Let's make that happen. <laughs> so tell us uh, more about the story of Pirates and how it, it came to be that you're interpreting the idea for this uh, nine-year-old girl. How does that work? Sure. Well, I got lucky in that when I was um, promoting the books of Elsewhere for Penguin, my publisher, um, they sent me on a group tour with... Um, three other authors, including Jeff Rodkey on one leg of the tour, um, where we pretended to be in a ridiculous game show called Endangered Authors. And the four of us were the, the guest panelists on this game show, uh, at, which had this diabolical host named Holden A. Grudge. Um, and the host was played by one of the story pirates and the script was written by the story pirates. And then it was this hilarious, crazy, fake game show that we would perform at schools where he would ask us questions about our books and then turn the questions on the kids in the audience. And if they got the questions wrong, awful things were supposed to happen to us, but they all just ended up happening to the host instead. Um, so yeah, it was really fun and funny. And that's how the story pirates knew who I was and knew the kind of things that I wrote. So I was lucky enough to be invited um, to, yeah, to work with them on this project. So you were touring them uh, with them to multiple schools to, to perform this game show? Yes, all over the country. So I did the tour three different times and there were other amazing authors. Adam Gidwitz was one of the authors who wrote A Tale Dark and Grim and The Inquisitor's Tale. Um, Sandy London, who wrote, uh, uh, oh my gosh, I didn't forget the name of Sandy's series. Sorry, Sandy. Um, but The Wild Ones and his new thing is a YA um, duology called Black Wings Beating. Uh, Jennifer Choldenko, who wrote Al Capone Does My Shirts and all of those was another one of our tour mates. And then, yeah, we would be on the road for about three weeks. We'd go to schools all over the country from New York to California. And it was just a blast. Yeah. Jennifer was uh, on the blog uh, just last year. Jennifer, oh. if you're listening, you are absolutely welcome uh, to come <laughs> on as well. So yeah. well, that's a whole lot of fun. Do you get to do things like, are, are you comfortable getting up and, and, and not necessarily acting? But kind of giving a performance, yeah. Um, I... I have an embarrassing past in the performing arts. My college degree was actually in voice performance and I used to make a living as a dinner theater actress. So I'm not super uncomfortable in front of an audience, but I am uncomfortable just talking about myself. <laughs> I love it when I can be in front of an audience and play a character, that's fun. But having to just be me is not as easy. So I can fake it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, today you can just pretend to be uh, Jacqueline yes. West, superstar author, An author uh, whatever that persona looks doing. like, yep. <laughs> before you take it back off and you go and you check on your, your son and you deal with uh, everything that's waiting for you at the house. Exactly. <laughs> what, uh, so with this, this idea from a, a nine-year-old girl, how detailed a proposal is that? And how closely did you work with her to craft the final version? So I didn't get to communicate directly with her between the time of the contest and the book getting written, um, which is probably good. I would have felt like I had to keep asking her, is this okay with you? Is, would you like to try this instead? And instead, we both kind of had the freedom to do our own creative thing. Um, so her outline was really fairly specific. She had planned out who the culprit was, who the detective was, 
what the big mystery was and the reason behind it and the setting. So I kind of had the five big building blocks for a mystery, but then I got to create everything around that. So I got to make lots of decisions about the peripheral characters, the way the setting felt and looked and smelled, um, why the, the culprit did what he did. Um, so yeah, it was, it was kind of like having someone write your original outline in a really bare bones kind of way and then getting to build on that. And then do you get to check in with her now that the book is published and see if she's uh, thrilled with the, uh with what her idea has, has formed? Yeah, I've heard that she is. I know she was just on the Story Pirates podcast. Um, and yeah, I think we're gonna get to Skype sometime soon and chat and finally sort of meet face to face. But yeah, she seems delightful and I'm, I'm so excited that we picked her idea. It's exciting. How exciting for her, how exciting for you, how exciting for nine-year-olds everywhere that have ideas for stories and, yes. and can maybe dream mm -hmm. that theirs will be one of the next that that you or, or some other talented author will take on. Exactly. Well, and the coolest thing is, so not only is her name on the cover forever for all to see, Phoebe, um, but she's also a cartoon character who appears throughout the book. Because the cool thing about the books is there's a story written by me, and then there is a story creation zone at the back of the book, which is all about story writing activities and principles and so on, things the story pirates use in their school projects. Um, so you can flip back and forth between the story and things at the end to talk about things like foreshadowing and descriptive writing and so on. Um, and Phoebe and um, the little story pirate character, Rolo, uh, pop up wherever there's a spot where you can turn to the back of the book and then do an activity yourself. So she gets to appear as a little cartoon character throughout the book, as well as having her name on the cover, which I would have That's totally fun. loved as a kid. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> if I had that book in my past, I don't know if I'd written any others. Like, nope, that's as good as it gets. Let's call it a day. <laughs> and what a fun opportunity to use that as a way to teach creative writing to young people. And then are you guys going and giving some presentations specifically? Are, are you part of those presentations? Well, the story pirates get to do a lot of the on the road stuff with this. Um, I mostly right now I'm not, although of course I'll be using it in my own school visits and so on this spring. And whenever I teach writing workshops, I get to pull activities right out of here, which is fun and kind of lazy of me, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that the reason you would write a book like this? Part of the reason is that you would always have that then going Absolutely. Forward? And I'm a former high school English teacher, too. So this is right up my alley, like getting to both write the story and talk about why the story works and what goes into creating a story like this. So That makes sense to me. So you, you've done a little bit of everything that now uh, gets to help shape your professional career and expand on all fronts. Yeah. It's true. Uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of lucky in that way. I mean, that I'm... I'm not uncomfortable in a school setting. I'm not uncomfortable in front of a crowd, which are kind of the things that most authors, I mean, and genuinely, I too would rather avoid. It's much more comfortable to just hide in my house in my pajamas with my coffee and have nobody see me. <laughs> but yeah, I've got a, a decent background for a writer. Well, you can always be, and I'm gonna get the, it's, I believe it's Emily Dickens uh, oh. who wrote all of her poetry and all of her work in, a, in an attic room and just mm -hmm. left it there. And then it was only after she died they went in there, like, oh, there's good stuff here, and, yes. and started distributing it. Yeah, yeah. If I'd had a different kind of life, I could have been very much an Emily Dickinson type, <laughs> hiding in my attic, wearing all white dresses. Yes. <laughs> Not me. Too much. Too much ego. <laughs> I'm alive now. Thank me now. Yeah. <laughs> It is nice to get paid. That is nice. That that is also nice. 
Uh, but one other thing I, I wanted to ask you uh, about this series uh, is there is a review on the back from Kirkus Review, uh, which is, you know, it's just huge. Uh, in fact, I'm going to make sure I get it correct. They called it well worth reading, which is high praise indeed. Um, so I wondered uh, just from a practical sense, because when I see reviews like that, I always think, well, I don't know that many children who read Kirkus. Uh, they may be out there and I just haven't met them. So what does that review for, for authors who are listening to this or watching this and would maybe aspire to having a Kirkus review for one of their books. What does that do for you in practical terms? What marketing opportunities does that open up for you? Well, what it does for me on an emotional level is kind of a giant sense of relief. Kirkus is extremely picky. Um, and so, yes, as soon as the, the first review comes in, and in this case, Kirkus was the first review, and they said such glowing things. It was just this wonderful feeling of, oh, okay. It works. Um, but professionally, what I think a review like that does is it gives a really nice little blurb and a little star that you can put on the cover of the book then when it comes out in paperback or even the hardcover if you're printing is fast enough. Um, and I think that starred reviews do tend to call the attention of the people who actually buy the books, although the kids aren't reading Kirkus, librarians are teachers might be, um, and certainly booksellers and so on when they go to giant conventions and room full of books, it, it, it's helpful to have that little star marking something as, hey, take an extra look at this. So I think that, that those are valuable in that way, certainly. However, I've seen a lot of books be just gigantic successes without any of that kind of starred review treatment. And as a writer, you never know what's going to get one. It's so subjective. I mean, I have books that I've worked on for years and years and, you know, felt very um, not necessarily proud of, but that I believed in and that didn't get that kind of attention and others where it surprises you and they do love it. So it's, it's very much out of the writer's hands. You just have to try to write the best book that you can and then hope that somebody else likes it too. So. Well, that makes sense. And I suppose that's uh, what we're all having to do. Um, nice. Well, let's talk uh, about the collectors because that's the first in a two book series, right? You've got mm -hmm. another book coming out in the reasonably near future. Yes, so Volume 2 of The Collectors, it's going to be called A Storm of Wishes. It comes out in October 2019. I was going to say, and that is um, already written, and now we're in the copy editing stages. So it's basically done. Gotcha. So you, you'll have to go through it again and make sure that there's nothing horrendous left over after the copy edit, but otherwise you're good to go? Yes, almost there. <laughs> that has to be enormously satisfying. Ah, yeah. One last thing. <laughs> yes. Well, and I find writing sequels so hard. To me, book two of anything is just, it is the most difficult kind of writing to do. So I'm always extra relieved when book two is wrapped up. <laughs> well, jumping uh, a little bit to the books of elsewhere, because that's a, a five book series. And I know that mm -hmm. we're all hoping that maybe one day we'll get a sixth book or maybe a spinoff, uh, something more within that universe. Can, can mm -hmm. we get that exclusive here? Is that going to happen? <laughs> I have no plans at this point to write any more of the books of elsewhere. I'm sorry, but I don't say never. I mean, maybe someday. Who knows? But uh, no this interview is over. I've asked the question I came here to ask. Have a nice day. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the collectors. Remind uh, Steam Reader what what is the premise of the collectors? So the collectors, yes, is about a small boy named Van. Um, his actual name is Giovanni, but nobody calls him that except for his mother, who is a famous opera singer. So Van gets hauled all around the world with her to wherever she's currently performing. And they live in each city for just a couple of months at a time. So his life has been very rootless. 
Um, and Van is also hard of hearing. He wears hearing aids while his mother's whole life revolves around music. So they often exist in kind of different spheres. Um, and Van's main hobby is collecting weird little objects that he finds on the ground, things that other people have lost or dropped or wouldn't have noticed in the first place. But to him, they're like treasures. Um, so he has this box full of little lost and found objects um, that he keeps under his bed. And then he creates little scenarios with them where he gets to act things out. It's kind of his imaginary world full of characters that he controls. Um, and one day when he's doing his collecting thing in a busy city park, he sees something that he's not supposed to be able to see, something literally no one else around him perceives, but Van sees it. And someone else notices that he noticed it. And that's how he gets pulled into this whole new world of magic and danger involving the collectors. And if you want to know what it is that Van sees, it sounds like you have to buy the book, but it's available <laughs> widely now. <laughs> yes, I don't want to give everything away, but like I told you, it does involve wishes and wish magic and a talking squirrel. I'll give you that hint as well. <laughs> oh, well, now I'm sold. Uh, before I was mostly leaning over the fence, but talking yeah. squirrel, that knocks me over the edge. Let's see what you got. <laughs> and let me uh, ask you, when you're doing uh, research for your characters and trying to put yourself uh, in their head for a, uh, a character who is hard of hearing, Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of research do you do to prepare for that? How do you put yourself in Van's head? I'm glad you asked that, um, because this was something that I didn't actually set out to do. I didn't know when I started writing the book that Van was going to be hard of hearing. Um, it was just something that the character himself sort of revealed to me when I was halfway through writing my first draft. And when I realized this about him, everything else in the story fell into place his mother's work, his hobbies, why he saw the world the way that he did. Everything suddenly made sense. It was like the magic key. And my, immediately, my immediate response was just to like chicken out, to just think, I, <laughs> I can't do that. I, I myself am not hard of hearing. I don't have anyone in my immediate family who is deaf or hard of hearing. And I wasn't sure that I could do justice to that kind of really you know, immersive experience. But I also couldn't take it out. Like once the character had told me this about himself, I couldn't remove it. It was like a real person had told me something about themselves and, and the story would not have worked without it. So instead I dove into research um, and I contacted the deaf and hard of hearing teachers at multiple local schools who were incredibly generous with me. They let me come and hang out and visit with their students who were also amazingly generous and fun and funny and imaginative. I mean, they told me all kinds of things that are woven into um, Van's, Van's story. And they let me follow them around to classes. And um, I also got to go and talk with a book club uh, from the Minnesota State Academy for the Deaf, which is not too far from my home. And they had all read the first volume, actually, I think the first three volumes of the books of Elsewhere. And so we had this book club where they were all communicating in sign language and then their translator would help me out. And it was just amazing. And so I got to ask them as well for, for insight into what Van's experiences of this magical world would be like. Um, so yeah, with all of that help and all of that research, I finally felt like, I'm, I'm still not sure I'm doing it complete justice, but I felt like I had done my best to, yeah, to have all the right, the right facts, the right perspectives woven into the character. Well, is there any any aspect of any book where you've ever just sat back and said, nailed it, I've, I've done everything 100% perfect, there's no reason to feel insecure whatsoever? No, never, that'll never happen. <laughs> well, for uh, authors that might want to do something similar, 
Um, how did you go about approaching these folks to, to let you do the research? Um, well, the, the nice thing is I come from an education background, so I knew people in various um, school districts near me. So I could say to one teacher friend or a relative, hey, who's the person at the school who I should contact about this? And then teachers tend to be delightful people. <laughs> so if you reach out to them, their usual response is, sure, you know, come and chat with us or I'll make time for you. They're just, I mean, on top of everything else that they're doing, they're really wonderful, helpful people. Um, and one of them has even read my entire manuscript and made sure I had nothing, you know, left in it that was too egregious before I sent it off to my editor. So, yeah, just reaching out either through email or through a phone call has been, I mean, I've never had anybody say, nope, not interested. In my experience, whenever you tell someone, I'm writing a story and I'd really love your expertise to help me out, because everybody loves to help tell a story. I mean, and then they know they get thanked in the acknowledgments and they're woven into that character and... Yeah, it's, it's all just been really, really welcoming and helpful. So be brave and ask is my advice. <laughs> well, it makes 100% of sense. <laughs> I, I found um, just over a lifetime, one of the easiest ways to get insight into a character or anything else is just sit down or hop on the phone with somebody, but sit down across from somebody, look them in the eye and say, tell me things about you. And very few people can resist that opportunity because oh, yeah. we're all walking around wishing to tell people <laughs> things about ourselves. And so somebody's honestly going to listen if I were a psychologist, um, what a what a terrible lapse in ethics. Uh, I'd want to write down everything somebody told me. Like, oh, my gosh, your marriage is so terrible. That's exactly what my novel needs. Exactly. Uh, oh, this is so juicy. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just change this guy's character from uh, Tad to Chad. Boom. There you go. Protected no one will notice. Problem. <laughs> well, problem. Let's, well, let's talk about uh, the books of Elsewhere in conjunction with the collectors, because how do you know uh, when you're starting a story, whether you've got uh, a standalone on your hand, a series on your hand, a, a two novel series or a five novel series? When does that information hit? Um, to be honest, I never do know. It's with my with the books of Elsewhere. That was my very first project, my very first book. I mean, when I got my agent. Um, and the book I had sent to him was what became The Shadows, the first of the books of Elsewhere, I had not even let myself think about a sequel because I was so sure that no one would want one book from me. Of course, they wouldn't want a second. <laughs> um, and then he, you know, read the story and got to the end and said, well, you're planning on writing a sequel, right? And I said, sure, because <laughs> now someone wanted me to. I had just like literally never let my imagination open that door. Um, and the funny thing is, uh, the story, I did not really have to restructure once I started, you know, writing that second book because I had left all of these doors closed but not locked. Like, there were all kinds of things that I had not fully resolved in that first book. It was like I had been subconsciously writing the start of a series, but yeah, completely subconsciously. Um, so then when my editor for that project and I started to talk about it, um, Jess Garrison at Dial, she is wonderful. Um, she said, well, what do you think about the idea of making it a series and having this much bigger canvas to plan? And once again, I said, sure, because now I had someone who wanted multiple books from me. I would actually be employed for years <laughs> and I would get to, you know, expand the story in all kinds of exciting ways. Um, so in that discussion, we kind of settled on how about five books? And if that were happening to me today, I know I'm 
pretty much positive. I would not have had the confidence or the hubris to be like, sure, I can write a book a year. Um, but I just, I dove in and um, to my good fortune, everything did work out. I had plenty more to explore with those characters in that world. And, um, and I think knowing, so it was right around the beginning of book two that I knew I was going to have five books. So knowing the size of the canvas that I was going to get to fill really helped me. If I had, had you know, learned halfway through the series, oh, wait, nope, it's going to be six books, I would have been in real trouble. But when I knew the exact size of my parameters, I could aim for this very specific endpoint. I knew how it was all going to wrap up. And then with each volume that came in between, I kind of had a story that could stand on its own, but that is also adding to that final you know, culmination of everything. So it's like a series of stairs getting to the last big jump. Um, so yeah, that's how that one worked for me. Like I said, I think I got really lucky. I <laughs> now can't believe I just jumped in that way, but it, it worked. Um, with the collectors, I always knew it was gonna be more than one book. I just wanted to, once again, have the space to explore a little bit more of this magical world. But I wasn't sure whether it was going to be two or three books. And when I sold it um, to my, my publisher for that book, she was also incredibly understanding and flexible. And so when I was kind of wavering between two and three and, and told her, I'm really not sure, I kind of am leaning toward two. She let me put off that decision for a while until book two was underway. And then it was like feeling pretty clear to me that, yeah, this was all the story was gonna take. So that is going to be a two book series, which feels very comfortable to me. And then for my third book, I get to write something else, a standalone for her. So that's what's next in my future. <laughs> oh, excellent. What uh, wonderful flexibility you have, uh, it sounds like, at this point in your career. Yeah, I've, I've gotten lucky. Although this is the first time that I have felt this kind of flexibility. I mean, the books of Elsewhere were a, a pretty tight schedule of a book a year for those five years. And then, yeah, once this was underway, I, again, had my parameters of one book, book two, um, and you don't want to keep your readers waiting for too long, so there is pressure to get everything done on time. But, yeah, at this point, now I kind of have all the room in the world to explore and decide what I want to pursue next, which feels crazy. <laughs> oh, it's a good feeling for a while until it's been too long, and I'm on my second binge Netflix series, and I go, <gasps> what am I doing with my life? I need to, I need to write something new. Exactly. <laughs> so when you're uh, when you're doing something like that, where you know a specific number of books that you you agreed to hit, um, are you how how um, tightly are you outlining and planning at that point? Are you still pantsing the majority of it? How do you typically work? I am such a shameful pantser. I yeah, I tend not to outline, and I I still like I said I don't know how I got through the books of elsewhere without a very detailed outline, but I did. I, um, I, I tend you had to no have outline kind of, at all or just not a very detailed one? <laughs> almost none. Oh my um, lord. <laughs> yeah, when I start now, other writers look at me with horror on their faces. But when horror, I describe, but also like horror for myself because I can't do that, but you yeah. absolutely pulled it off. <laughs> it's, it's just the way my brain works. I guess I wish it was more organized because I'm quite organized in other elements of my life, but but I've realized that if I do write a detailed outline and then I try to follow it as I'm drafting, I write like a kid describing the plot of a movie. Like I just, and then this happens and then that happens. And then this guy comes in and says this. And it just like all of the, all of the spark goes out of it for me. 
Um, I think in part because I have to be discovering along with my character what happens next in order to keep up my own interest and to really keep my, my vision clear. Um, so yeah, a lot of the time I don't know exactly what's gonna happen in the next scene until I get there. Um, I have a couple of books that I've done where I did have a very clear plan for what was gonna happen. And I even had a pretty skeletal outline. Um, like the YA I'm working on right now has a, a, an outline, but it's very flexible and it's just kind of a line or two per chapter. Here's what happens. Um, but within that, all kinds of things flex and move and change completely. So yeah, that's why I'm a pantser instead of a plotter. I, I just need that flexibility and the spontaneity for it to work for me. That makes sense. I'm always uh, somewhere in between. I find yeah. that if I have no plan, then I'm, I'm going to end up writing myself in no corner. Uh, but if I have too detailed an outline, I don't want to write the book anymore because I already know everything that happens. Exactly. Exactly. So what do your outlines look like? They're not super detailed or? Uh, they're usually just um, a sheet. I call it a grocery list. And it's uh, I start with a sheet of like maybe five major story events that I know that's going to that are going to happen. <laughs> and I usually have some inkling of the ending, although I invite the characters to talk me out of it. Uh, there have been characters that were scheduled to die, and they, they managed to convince <laughs> me that, no, they, they deserve to live. Uh -huh. um, but, uh, yeah, the one book where I, I, I did sit down and I wrote, like, a 20-page detailed step-by-step mm -hmm. -step outline, I never wrote that book. Mm -hmm. I, I felt like I'd, I'd covered that story. Exactly. You feel project. like you already did it. Yeah. Yep. Writing the outline is good enough. I just read Save the Cat Writes a Novel which is really making the rounds among writers I know right now. People are really enthusiastic about it. And it's fascinating, both as a, a writer and a teacher of writing. Um, and I realized as I read it that there are, I mean, she kind of breaks down the necessary beats that she theorizes make up every successful story. Um, and you realize all the things that you just do without thinking about it, just the way you use grammar correctly without thinking about it. You know, if something is your native language, you just have absorbed how it works. And so I think that a lot of us who love stories and read a lot of them just absorb how it works and you can kind of do it without thinking too consciously about it. But having it all laid out for me in this sort of technical way really did make me rethink my lack of outlining because when I do get a little stuck, when I feel like something is too slow, there's not enough tension at this point, or something is missing from the middle, it's one of the elements that she's talking about. Either my B story isn't strong enough, or I'm not doing the dark night of the soul thing quite emphatically enough. So yeah, that book really was helpful. I'm gonna try to put it in practice, maybe, with my next, <laughs> my so save, next project. Save the Cat writes the novel, has Jacqueline West official writer's seal of approval. There you go, yes. That's the one. Yeah. And aside from that, while, while we're talking about it, are there other um, resources or books that you'd recommend for authors? Oh yeah, Stephen King's On Writing is a classic and I don't know any writers who have read it and not loved it. Um, yeah, there are several things in that that I repeat to myself, not just about his technical writing advice, but his sort of encouraging advice, his story about as a kid, um, pounding a big nail into his bedroom wall and hanging his rejection slips on it. And eventually the nail getting so heavy with rejection slips that it fell off. And then he pounded in a railroad spike and kept on putting on the rejection slips. I so did things that. Like that. After I read, read that book, yourself. I hung on my nail. <laughs> exactly. Oh, and it makes you feel better thinking Stephen King has been here before me. Um, so yes, on writing, wonderful. I also love Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird, which is kind of a a humorous and philosophical book about writing. It's far less technical, but more about 
opening your eyes, experiencing the world, the, the things that you have already all around you that are there for the taking for you to use as material. Um, so yeah, I loved that book as well. Um, and non-book wise, there are some websites that I found super helpful. So Neil Gaiman's blog, although he is unfortunately not keeping it up anymore, but for years and years, he had this fabulous detailed blog where he would also answer at length questions from readers. And a lot of them are about writing, about publishing, about the ins and outs of novel creation. And his answers are so helpful. They're so encouraging. So he's like my imaginary mentor, <laughs> little Neil Gaiman on my shoulder. Um, so yeah, going back and reading his book. I know. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, the website Agent Query is where I learned how to write a decent query letter. Between that and another blog that's now defunct, Miss Snark. Um, I got lots of great examples for how to write and hone a query letter that will hopefully get an agent's attention. So those are some of my, <clears throat> excuse me, go-to online sources. I remember Miss Snark. She was one of my big inspirations when I started Middle Grade Ninja. Was oh well, I'm going to do what Miss Snark's doing, and and I didn't. She was she was infinitely better than I am, Miss Snark. If you're listening, come back to us. I right, know. Right, Who blog. are you? <laughs> <laughs> Still a mystery. Yeah, no, she was great. Went brutal, but great. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, what else? Oh, I wanted to ask you about, uh, while we were talking about the books of elsewhere, I wanted to ask you about all of Dunwoody, because something I've noticed, and now that we're, we're talking about your other books as well, it, it, it strikes me as kind of a pattern. Uh, one of my favorite things about that book is that Olive is just so clearly a left brain thinker. Uh, and both their parents are mathematicians, so there's that automatic tension between them that they're just not quite speaking the same language. And mm -hmm. now we're talking about the collectors, uh, where you've got a, a child who can't hear with a mother who's deeply involved in music. Uh, we were talking about the botanist parents that are decidedly different from your, your main character in, in Digging Up Danger. Uh, is that a conscious choice or is that just kind of coming up every time? <laughs> oh, I know. I, I noticed that for myself <laughs> thinking about book six or seven. Where I realized, yeah, this seems to be my MO and everything I do. Um, I'm sure my parents would have something to say about that. But uh, I don't think I set out to do it consciously. However, the idea of children who don't feel like they fit into their own world that's a constant for me. That certainly was my own experience. Um, and so often it's their own families that kids feel they don't quite fit with. Maybe not in some, you know, cruel way. Their parents are there and they're loving and maybe they haven't. I mean, there's there's the tendency in a lot of middle grade fiction to have the parents die. Just so you've got that, you know, um, that entire framework out of the way. So your kid can have their adventure all on their own. In, in the case of my books, I wanted to do less of that, not to follow the dead parent trope, to have the parents there, but to still be so much in their own world that they don't quite overlap with some of the adventures that their children are having. So yeah, uh, I guess now it's a bit more conscious than it used to be, but at first it certainly wasn't. But yeah, it's something that I do like to explore, having a child who sees the world very differently from the people around them. And that's my other big theme, theme in pretty much everything I do. My main characters very often see or hear or notice things that the people around them don't notice. And that that is what draws them into the adventure that changes their life. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that makes sense. 
Um, I know that now that I'm uh, midway through the third Banneker Bones book, I, I also wanted to avoid the dead parent trope. So I've got two sets of parents uh, that I kept alive. And now in book three, I'm having some additional plot complications. Like, hmm, dead parents. That doesn't sound so bad anymore. That, that Looking, simplifies yeah. things a little bit. <laughs> yep, it starts to look like a really handy thing to do. <laughs> Of course, any time you've got two or, th or more characters interacting for more than a couple of chapters, you've got to have some conflict there. So mm -hmm. I'm sure it helps to have that already baked in. Yes, I think both conflict and humor. Like, I love that Olive's parents are so in love with math. Like, to them, it's just the most romantic thing. I love that when a lamp shatters and her mother can count the pieces lying on the rug without even, you know, taking it more than a couple of seconds and her... Her husband, Alice's father, is so smitten by this. <laughs> I, I love that, and that's just them. Um, and I, I wanted to set it up specifically that way in the books of Elsewhere because I knew the house was gonna be all about magic and about art magic. While I wanted her parents to have their own kind of very different magic. So for them, it's math magic, which to me just felt like two completely separate spheres, things that both have their own internal logic, a way that they work, but never overlap. So they're, you know, just the Venn diagram where the two circles don't touch. <laughs> That's Olive and her parents. <laughs> that strikes me as I, as I, when I read the books of Elsewhere, those are, uh, I don't want to say that they're, you know, horror books, for, but for kids, but they are noticeably scary in, in places. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a darker element that seems to run through mu most of your fiction with, at some point, we're going to get a ghost, we're going to get a paranormal uh, <laughs> event of some kind. What tips do you have for those of us who want to write middle grade horror while not going so dark that we've uh, managed to write ourselves out of the market? Mm. I have yet to write anything where I've had an editor or a critique group partner or anyone else tell me, this is too scary, you have to pull back. I mean, they might point out that they do find something frightening, but never to the extent where they think it's, it's too much for readers. I know that I, as a young reader, Sorry, I hope you're not overhearing my three-year-old. He's adorable. <laughs> I, as a young reader, loved scary stories, but I'm also kind of a coward. So for me, writing scary stories gives me this power over everything that frightens me. I'm afraid of things like the dark, things like yeah, deep water, bugs, all kinds of things. Um, and now I get to weave those into my, my fiction. Um, I'm sorry, distracted by the background. Do you need to take um, a quick moment and go straighten things out? I might out? just go make sure everything's okay. Yeah, no just problem. A I'll be right back. Tell you what, last time we had a break like this, esteemed audience, I made the mistake of reading somebody else's book. Won't do that again. Let me give you just a little taste here of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and that'll be our hold music. Chapter one, Trouble with School. In some ways, school is better than prison. Not many, but some. Like prison, school is all about routine. At 5.30 each morning, Ellicott Skullworth's mother woke him. At 6.30, he rode the school bus. At 7 o'clock, the first bell rang and class began. Recess was at 9.30. Lunch was at 12.30. Second recess was at 1.30, and the final bell rang at 3 o'clock. Ellicott rode the bus home, and at 5.30 the next morning, it began again. Each day, the same as the last, the same as the next. An infinite stretch of the same miserable day to be lived over and over again. The day Ellicott Skullworth's life changed forever began just this way. Who can tell me the name of the inventor of modern robots, Mrs. Eddy asked her fifth grade class. 
Ellicott knew the answer, of course. Everyone knew the answer. But Craig Keller was the only one with his hand raised. Craig's desk was in the first row. Ellicott sat in the last row behind Sam Irwood, the fattest kid in the fifth grade. This worked out well for Ellicott because he could keep Dracula open on his desk, and Sam's meaty shoulders blocked Mrs. Eddy's view of the book. Ellicott had been paying more attention to reading than listening to the lesson, but he stopped when Craig answered, Banneker Bones. No, Mrs. Eddy said. Close. Ellicott shook his head. Everyone knew it was Banneker Bones' father, Dr. Dr. Patrick Bones, who invented modern robots. I see Jacqueline is back with us. <laughs> so that's a little taste for you. Download your free uh, ebook of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees today. Jacqueline, welcome back. Are, are we good? Everything's fine. I'm sorry. A little bit of a three-year-old meltdown happening. Everything's okay. Um, yeah, thank you for giving me a break. <laughs> so as far as three-year-old meltdowns go, that, that sounds uh, relatively tame. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is probably like an eight on the scale. Can get up to 10 or 11. So, yeah, we'll be all right. <laughs> Do you have uh, time to answer some more questions for us? Or should oh, we yeah, think about absolutely. Wrapping it up? Yeah, okay. no, I can. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, the pressure's on. Let me uh, come up with a good question now. Whew. Oh, we were talking about uh, oh, scariness yes, and how not to be too scary. Yes. So, I, yeah, I'm not, I guess I'm never asking myself, am I being too scary? Because I know that books will kind of find their own level, that it's really our our imagination that's making something about as scary as we can handle. So if there's a, you know, um, a book like Coraline, for example, a lot of adults found that really upsetting. But kids, in my experience, and I've talked to a lot of them who've read Coraline, um, don't find it as scary as adults do. And I'm not sure completely why that is, but I think it has something to do with the age at which you read it, that your imagination makes something just as scary when you are turning those letters on the page into images as you can handle. And so, yeah, I think that that's kind of what's going on. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm putting that very eloquently, but yeah, that's what I found. It makes sense to me. I'm always trying to avoid what I call the Toy Story 3 moment. Uh, for me, the, the, the movie, obviously all the Toy Story movies are wonderful. But there is a moment in uh, Toy Story 3 where the toys are all gathered and they're uh, put toward the dump and then they're they're on their way to be incinerated. And the, it's a, maybe like a two or three minute scene. It just goes on forever. And the toys all hold hands and they, they say their goodbyes to each other and then they prepare for uh, oh. inevitability. And then they're, they're, they're rescued, of course, and it goes on to have a happy ending. But that happy ending doesn't cancel out just how unbelievably horrified mm. I remember being in the theater watching that. And I was oh. looking around at the, the kids around me, and they've all got wide eyes. And like, yeah, this, I guess this could be the end of Woody and Buzz. I wouldn't have thought so, but here we are. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's horrible. <laughs> I haven't seen Toy Story 3 myself. But, yeah, that's – I mean, I never want to do anything that feels emotionally manipulative. And I really hate that in movies for kids where, I mean, oh, it almost seems like if there's a lovable dog, something bad is going to happen to the dog. And I, or, you know, to the mother character, like, it's just so formulaic that something, something that we've been set up to be attached to is going to happen to take that thing away in this really, to me, manipulative feeling um, scene. And so, yeah, I try to avoid that and the, the kinds of creepiness or eeriness that I go for in my books. It's less about that kind of horrible loss of having you and all your friends 
<laughs> like in Toy Story, about to die. Um, that would be, yeah, that would feel too extreme to me. Like I said, too emotionally manipulative to a young reader. And myself as a reader, I don't like that. I don't want to feel emotionally manipul manipulated. I like feeling scared, but I don't feel like the author is toying with me, you know? I like being manipulated occasionally, but only if it's done really well so that I don't know until after I've, I've already had the experience that, oh, yeah, you manipulated uh -huh. me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I don't want to know what's happening. Yeah, that's it. And back uh, when we chatted in originally in 2013, because mm -hmm. uh, you faced the seven questions still available at middlegradeninja.com. I'll <laughs> link to it in the notes to the show. Make sure you go check out that interview. Um, but you had said at that time you were writing about a thousand words a day. Is that still about the average you're hitting? Oh, I don't think so anymore. I, that was before my kid and everything changed. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, yeah, I in general don't keep a close word count these days. For a while, I was just trying to keep a an amount of time that I spent actually writing per day. I have this little app on my phone that I love called Forest, where you can plant trees or mushrooms or other um, little kinds of, you know, uh, botanical specimens that then if you look at your phone again, you go online, the tree dies. So it's both a timer and a tool to keep you focused on what you're doing. So whenever I go to the coffee shop, I can set it to grow a little pine tree and then I try not to look at my phone anymore for half an hour or 45 minutes or whatever it is. So counting in time instead of in words lately has worked a little better for me. Um, because I'm a longhand first draft writer, too, a thousand words can be a lot. I mean, that's a lot of pages. <laughs> um, it's about four typing and about 10 handwritten, I've noticed. Um, so yeah, instead of counting words, I'm just trying to actually get a little bit of progress each day, a little bit of time that I can carve out from everything else to get something done. Yeah, it's probably less than it used to be. Do you notice uh, a difference? I notice that when I'm writing for adults or young adults, I'm, I can maybe get a thousand to two thousand words a day. Whereas mm -hmm. when I'm back to middle grade, I'm lucky if I got 500, 600 words just because oh. it, it has to be so much more compressed and the real estate mm -hmm. is so much more valuable. Do mm -hmm. you find a difference when you're writing uh, middle grade and young versus young adult? Interesting. I haven't seen a huge difference between those two for me, but I have done a lot more middle grade than YA. Um, the YA that I wrote that will be coming out in May was one of the fastest and smoothest things I've ever written for whatever reason, which is very different from my last YA, which was a gigantic, <laughs> grueling slog. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I've noticed that kind of difference, but that, that makes sense. You're right. It's like the way that I write a poem where I'm really conscious of each word. And so it might take me all day to finish a poem, which is really only a couple hundred words whereas I could have typed a few pages of, of fiction. So yeah, there is that difference in, like you said, concentration and how much you're focusing on the word level. Makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And then um, that book you've got coming out in May, that's The Last Things, right? Yes, Last Things. I'll hold that one up too. So speaking of creepy, you can tell <laughs> this is in the horror vein. Yeah, this is one of the darker things I've written. This is kind of my modern day Minnesotan metal retelling or reimagining of the legend of the guitarist who might have sold his soul to the devil. <laughs> so yeah, I'm super excited about it. It's one of my, maybe my favorite thing I've ever written, which is 
kind of frightening to me to say because my immediately my immediate fear is I'll never write anything else that I like this much ever again. Um, but I'm yeah, I'm excited for it to go out into the world and meet readers. And that'll be uh, available in May. <laughs> and someone who's watching this, a publicist, your agent, someone is going to send me an art because okay. I am absolutely here for that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, good. And let's uh, talk a little bit, because you have written um, a couple of uh, poetry collections, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, I have. I wrote one that came out in 2010 and one that just came out this year. That's a full-length collection. So obviously, poetry takes longer to write than prose. But what are uh, kind of the practical difference between writing narrative prose versus a, a poem? Oh, wow. That is such a good question. Um, I guess one of the main differences for me is with poetry, it'll be just kind of a flash of inspiration, an image or a sensation that I want to capture on paper. And then I can usually sit down and finish that, at least a, a first draft of it, in one day. Whereas with fiction, I really feel like I'm living with these characters in this alternate world. And each day I have to return to it with or without that flash of inspiration. I mean, <laughs> there are days when it's just trying to build on what you built the day before. Um, so in a sense, yeah, I mean, the work is, is so different in scale. It's so different in pace. It's so different in the, yeah, the amount of, of effort, really, for me. Not that poetry doesn't take effort. But fiction is a much more dedicated, like, every day try to make a little progress kind of work. Whereas poetry, in part because poetry doesn't pay my bills, tends to be the thing I can do whenever I'm motivated to. Yeah. And are you uh, still reading two to three novels a week? Or what are your reading habits like now? <laughs> I think I probably am, although it doesn't ever feel that way. I always post at the end of the year on my blog my list of everything I've read that year. And last year, I think I did get through 106 books. Um, so, yeah, it adds up. But the funny thing is I'm, I'm not a reader who ever just sits down with a book and a cup of coffee and reads. I'm always reading in between things. Like I'm reading while I brush my teeth or while I stir a pot of soup or in the car on a road trip with someone else or reading out loud to each other. So I just get it done in the bits of time in between things. Uh, and somehow I managed to, yeah, get a, a book or two a week in. And because it's something that you want to do and are fighting for time to do, I, I guess it probably doesn't feel like much of a chore. No, no, I'm never forcing myself to. And I read really widely. So lately I've been kind of on a graphic novel kick because there are so many good ones out there right now, especially in the middle grade and YA vein. Um, and I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of the kinds of things that I don't write myself. So it feels extra refreshing to dip into someone else's memoir or funny essays. Those are two of my favorite genres. <laughs> graphic novels, have you gotten to The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller yet? Oh, I think it's right behind me on the shelf. I'm trying to remember if I have read that one or not. I might have. Oh, you, <laughs> read... you'd remember. Okay, all right. <laughs> then I might not have, but I know it's behind me back there. I've got my graphic novel collection right there. <laughs> it's one of my uh, three favorite books of all time. Oh. Uh, anytime somebody tells me I don't read comic books, I will read this. Oh, I went to a uh, big book sale once and I got like 20 copies for a dollar. So mm -hmm. I just got to be Santa Claus with them. Here you Aww, go. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I've done that with several of my favorite books, too. I did that for a while with Anne Lamott's Operating Instructions. Everybody had to have a copy. Oh, and Emily Carroll's. It's also graphic. Um, Through the Woods. Have you read that? I haven't. It's so creepy. And I often see it shelved as YA, but it's extremely dark for YA. 
it's just got a word count that would kind of make it fit in there. But yeah, she is both the writer and illustrator, and it's a reworking of a lot of famous fairy tales, and it is dark and gorgeous. <laughs> well, there you go. We'll make a pact. I'll read that. You read the Batman book. We'll All come right. back and discuss. Sounds good. <laughs> and while we're talking about uh, dark and creepy, that's kind of a theme for the show, I guess. Um, what, uh, cause you, what is it that brings you back to the supernatural? Yeah, like I said, I think I'm I'm genuinely a coward. And so for me, getting to work through that on paper is very empowering. I mean, now I am in charge of the, the darkness and the spirits in it. Um, and that's a cool feeling for someone who's, who's sure that the dark is hiding something dangerous at all times. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I think that's part of it. And ever since I was little, I've been drawn to whatever is a little bit dark and creepy. Like my favorite character on Sesame Street when I was a toddler was the Count. When they would show the Count's castle and you'd hear the wolves howl, I'd get all excited. <laughs> so I think it's no, just... I was terrified of the Count. Really? <laughs> You're much braver than I was. Oh man, the Batty Bat, the Count song. We <laughs> Yes, anyway, I could go on. Um, yeah, and then when I was a little bit older, it was the dark and creepy kids books, things like the Benicula series, everything by Roald Dahl. Um, yeah, I loved all of that. And I didn't really get into the extreme horror, like the Stephen King, Gene Coops kind of horror, because that was, I'm not interested in gore. <laughs> I'm not interested in that kind of horror. I'm more interested in terror. So things like Shirley Jackson, she's one of my top authors ever, and a lot of Neil Gaiman are that kind of, that non-blood and guts related horror, that sense of something wrong, something looming, something that you can't explain, something more Lovecraftian. Um, yeah, that's what really appeals to me is the things we don't understand or maybe can't ever fully see. That's what I find really interesting. <laughs> well, we're uh, kind of talking in this vein, I've decided just because it's my show and it's something that I desperately want, I'm going to start. I've asked, I think, four guests so far. I think I'm just going to start asking everybody, what is your take on flying saucers and have you seen one? <laughs> I have never seen one. I am prepared to believe that they're out there. I mean, I, I don't think it's possible that we are alone in the universe. So I think it's likely that, yeah. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't know if I believe anybody has tried to make contact with us yet. And if they saw what's going on here these days, they might be, you know, smart not to. But yeah, I, I, I like to hope that someday that'll happen. I've, I've loved the story of uh, Carl Sagan and the gold record and just thinking of that, like floating out through space, taking some of the best human creations with it. Maybe it will eventually find its way to somebody. So yeah, I hope we're not alone. <laughs> so it's kind of my theory is that if I ask that question 10 times, we might get nine, no, I've never seen one answers, but that's okay because that 10th mm -hmm. time is going to be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Someone will have a good story. That'll be great. Yes. Uh, if there are any uh, famous ufologists listening, uh, email me. Let's do this. Um, <laughs> well, let's, let's pivot back to, to authors and fiction. Uh, what, who would you say are the authors who've had the greatest impact on you and your work? Oh, um, that's probably a lot of the things I read growing up are really in my DNA. You know, when you're little and you read the same books over and over and over again, just devotedly. Um, so besides Roald Dahl, um, Alice in Wonderland, and everything else, Lewis Carroll was huge. 
And so was everything Tolkien in my family. The Hobbit was the first real fantasy book we all read. And I was very young and it's still like so vivid in my mind listening to my mom read that out loud to us. Um, and then things like Calvin and Hobbes were super formative <laughs> to me. Um, and the Winnie the Pooh books as well. So a lot of things with talking animals, a lot of things set in the real world, but with odd, impossible magic happening. Um, a lot of things that have both fear and humor interwoven. So it totally makes sense that I am now the kind of writer that I am. Those are definitely what are in my DNA. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought Winnie the Pooh, but now that you say it, oh yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yep, that was big in our house. And it's so funny. I mean, rereading it now to my little guy. I, yeah, it, it's so funny and so timeless feeling. Yeah, it's still just as funny now. <laughs> There is a, uh, a YouTube video or a clip from some interview out there we're seeking out. It's the actor that does the voice of Winnie the Pooh, but oh. he's reading Darth Vader's lines from the original mm. Star Wars as Winnie the Pooh. Oh, it's excellent. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that would ruin Winnie the Pooh or Star Wars for me. <laughs> I, it enhanced my love for both. <laughs> Now let me uh, ask you a question that I'm always curious about. If I ever meet an author at a conference, one of the number one things I'm going to ask mm -hmm. uh, is, what are your, you finding the most success with for book marketing? What tips would you have for authors looking to market their books? Oh, wow. This is something I wish I knew more about. <laughs> I feel like I got into publishing with very little awareness of all of the behind the scenes. Um, and I, I certainly... I'm friends with a lot of writers who have self-published or, you know, done small presses where a lot of that then falls on them to do who are brilliant at the online marketing and publicity and so on. Um, I've been lucky enough to work with some big houses with great publicity departments who have done a lot of that work for me, which is great. Um, but for myself, what I have found to be most useful um, in terms of marketing and publicity, and, and this is only sort of tangentially related, um, are school visits. I do a lot of school visits and it started out with, you know, mostly local um, with either places where I had connections or places where teachers already knew me. Uh, and then it just spread and spread. And eventually as my books made state awards lists and so on, I'd be invited across the country to visit a school district for a few weeks and um, talk to hundreds of kids. So for me, that is the most, most natural and exciting way sort of to promote because then it doesn't feel like you're just trying to sell someone. You're also telling kids about how you created a story. You're a real live author showing them, yes, a real live person creates books. And, um, and I know that, of course, that has generated a lot of sales for me as well. So yeah, school visits have been my number one thing. And then, I mean, in online terms, I don't use Twitter. I am... Yeah kind of falling off of Facebook, although you basically still have to have a presence there. I feel like you do need to have a website with your contact information and biography. That's just kind of the basics. But beyond that, I've seen people work magic with all different platforms, and I just don't have the the savvy or the time to, to invest fully in, <laughs> in any one of those, I guess. So for me, it's the in-person stuff. It's school visits and writing workshops that I enjoy, and I feel like are yeah, are still really useful to me as a professional as well as a, yeah, a, a person who writes because they love it. Do you uh, have a newsletter? I don't. <laughs> Another thing I should probably do. I don't have a newsletter. Well, I think, I I think you're doing just fine without it. I'm just curious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you said, I, I just, yeah, I've got into all of this backward and I'm learning it as I go along, so... <laughs> 
another uh, question I've got for you that uh, is a little bit awkward and might be a little bit awkward to answer. So I just acknowledge that okay. up front. But you mentioned you have won multiple awards now and you've been on the New York Times bestselling list. We just read uh, the nice things that Kirk has had to say about you a little bit earlier in the program. So now with that body of clear evidence that you are successful as an author, do you still feel that same pressure that you felt in the beginning? Do you feel all new pressure? Is there ever a moment where you say, hey, I've made it. I want to keep writing, but I have made it. I don't think the pressure ever goes away. And I have never felt an I made it moment. Um, I know how lucky I am that this is my full time job. I mean, this is a dream and I'm so fortunate. But no, I never look at it. even the best things that have happened to me and think, okay, now I'm there. Um, in part because a lot of those big things happened to me so early in my writing career. I mean, it was my very first book that hit the New York Times list. The Shadows is still my most awarded book. Um, and, you know, you hope that you improve. <laughs> that in the eight or nine years since then, I'm, I'm hopefully a better writer. But you never know what's going to draw the attention, what's going to get the awards, what's going to get the nominations. Um, so no, I, I I still get rejections all the time. I get rejections for poems or for some event that doesn't invite me. Or I mean, yeah, it's just writing is a constant cycle of acceptance and rejection. So maybe if I someday get to the point where no one ever tells me no again, <laughs> then I'll feel like I've made it. But I certainly don't feel that way now. Every day I'm still trying to write better than I did before, and yeah, make fewer mistakes. <laughs> well, I suspect at this point, uh, if, if, if I were to reach that stage and no one ever told me no anymore, I'd start to get insecure about why is no one telling me no? <laughs> <laughs> yep, there must be something wrong. <laughs> well, going back to uh, when you were first starting, is there any advice that, what, what is the advice that you most wish someone had told you or that you would like to impart to aspiring writers? Oh, um, there is a really specific thing I wish I could have made myself do. So when I was getting started, I was very isolated. I lived in a tiny town in Wisconsin where I was teaching school. I knew no one else who was a professional writer. I had zero contacts in the writing world. Um, and I tend to be this awkward kind of introverted person. So I wasn't going to go out and join SCBWI and go schmooze at conferences or pitch myself to agents or anything in person that that idea just made me break out. Um, but and you with your background in drama and, and um, acting. But like I said, I would have had to be myself, not a partner. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I was not going to do that. But when I when I got my agent and the ball started rolling, um, I, there were suddenly ways online to connect with people. And there's that debut class every year, you know, that kind of forms around who has a. a a kids lit book coming out for the first time and they all kind of support each other and they become this network. Um, and I was invited to join the debut class of 2010 and I didn't because I just thought, oh, I'm busy and I don't know <laughs> what good that would do me. And that is one of my big regrets was not making connections sooner. I feel like I've gotten to the point now where I have a lot of them. I mean, a lot of writers who I've done events with or a critique group that I've found, you know, but it took me a lot of time to find other people who were in the same weird professional boat that I'm in. And writing can be a very lonely job. You know, I went from being a full-time teacher, being surrounded by people all day, to working alone in my house all day. And I really wish that I had, yeah, had explored those ways to connect sooner. Because the internet is just a gift to introverts and to people who live in tiny towns in Wisconsin. 
<laughs> so there's lots of ways to find your people. Well, heck, I'm in a smallish town in Indiana, and I'm talking to Jacqueline West. We're doing all right. Yes. <laughs> Jacqueline, uh, where uh, can uh, esteemed audience find out more about you? Where can they? Yeah, where can they find out more about you? Um, so my website, which I do maintain, um, is JacquelineWest.com, and that has info about all of my books. It has a very up-to-date events schedule. It has all my contact info. It has my biography. Um, and it also has a very complete listing of all my poetry and short fiction. A lot of that's online, so you can find links to that there. Um, and besides that, I'm pretty active on Instagram, where I am Jacqueline West Writes, with periods between the words. Um, and I do use Facebook, but less and less, like I said. So Instagram is where to find me. Makes sense. Jacqueline, thank you so very much for being here. This has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, pleasure's mine. Thank you so much. And thanks for your patience with the background noise. <laughs> Just fine. Well, uh, esteemed audience, check out JacquelineWest.com. As always, check out MiddleGradeNinja.com. Get your free copy of Annika Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, make sure you find your way back here Tuesday, the 22nd, to hear what Amy Tipton has to share with us. Uh, and uh, Jacqueline, we have introduced a new sign-off phrase I uh, just introduced it last week because I, I figure professional podcasts, video shows type things have sign-off phrases. Uh, so I've decided to go with hi-ya and what have you. So if anybody wonders why the heck we're still calling this thing middle grade ninja, that'll justify it. Hi-ya and what have you. So why don't you be the one to go ahead and say our sign-off phrase for us? Okay. Hi-ya and what have you. Oh, that's perfect. You can't do better than that. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in, esteemed audience. We'll see you next time on Tuesday.